Revelation 14. I'd like to read the first 13 verses and then spend a little time on uh, just, a, uh, just a few verses here uh, with regard to three angels, the ministry of three angels. Sometimes I have to remember that angels are not always creatures that have wings. The word angel means messenger. And sometimes it is a creature that has wings. A, a higher created being, uh, in a sense, than... Uh, well, in fact, it says... He, Christ, was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. So that means that the human race is a little lower uh, in power and abilities than the angels. But in the first three chapters of this book, angels, uh, when it's speaking, writing to the seven churches of Asia, uh, angels there represent the pastors of those churches. They were the messengers. And it's not a, a creature that has wings, but it's a messenger. And uh, sometimes we, we lose that and we think of other things. And I'd like us to keep that in mind when we read this section uh, of Scripture, keeping it spiritual. This is not literal. If we start trans looking at the book of Revelation as a literal experience, we soon are going to run our craft aground. And it's going to be on the rocks. It's a spiritual book. It's the same thing when we hear the Lord Jesus Christ say, I am the bread of life. Now there's some really, really, really good bread being made today. But he's not talking about that kind of bread. I am the water of life. I am the door. We look at him as spiritually speaking that way. So when we look at the book of Revelation, like so many other books, we want to make sure that we are asking the Lord to share us what is there spiritually. And that's what I want to read here. First, uh, in Revelation chapter 14, And I looked, and behold, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having their father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And we've looked at that lamb. Uh, the, the lamb is mentioned here in the book of Revelation more times. I think it's 22 times. It's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen that uh, probably the reason that that's mentioned that way, it was as a lamb, he was successful on our part. Uh, he is demonstrating himself in a successful garb as a lamb. Uh, the Old Testament represented him that way. John spoke of him as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The book of Revelation shares with us his victory as a lamb. And it tells us that there were 144,000. This is not a literal number. This is a representative of the church. It shares with us that God looks at the church as an absolute, identifiable number. We look at it as the scripture shares the book of Revelation as a number that no man can number. Uh, we are so finite and he is so infinite 
We are unable to number that number. He is able to number that number. And he knew exactly who he would be the lamb slain for. And it's represented as 144,000. Uh, they sung a new song uh, before the throne. And last week we saw that when he brings us out of a horrible pit, he puts a song in our heart. And that's a, a song of praise to the Lord. And it's only after we're regenerated that we can sing these songs from our heart. I am beginning to understand a little bit more of what John Newton meant when he wrote that poem, Amazing Grace. It's not just a song that we sing. It's a, it was a heartfelt, heart-believed conviction on his part. And God's people are able to sing that song with the same kind of heartfelt, heart conviction. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And they're able to see that as more than a poem. It's a, it's a words of praise to God. They sang it before the throne and before the four living creatures, the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000. And it's just that way. We'll not ever learn that song by uh, works. We'll never learn that song by reformation. That song can only be taught to us in regeneration. And we brought up that passage over in the book of, uh, of uh, uh, Joshua uh, about uh, the uh, Shibboleth and Sibboleth. If you don't have it, you can't say it. If you have it, you can say it. If you know the word, you can say it. If you don't have it, you just, your word, your mouth just can't form the word. And that's the way it is with grace. It's something that God gives to us in regeneration, and only the 144,000 can sing it, and only those that are redeemed, which are the 144,000, and these are they which were not defiled with women. And we looked last time, just a little later in this book, the whole world has committed fornication, spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery. And it's so pictorial of Hosea's wife. She had committed a crime against her husband. But when he went after her, like the Lord goes after the church, after they have been taken in this this. Uh, 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 unfaithfulness to God spiritually speaking and we got that in Adam when he comes back he makes it as if it had never happened he takes away that the guilt of it and so these have never had that they, they, they are as if they had never sinned and that's the position of the church we found over in Jude that that's, uh, he is able to present them spotless so this is his ability. He's able to take that which is highly corrupted and make it incorruptible. He is able to take that which was gone after the world to make it go after Christ. He is able to change a part of us for eternity and a part of us will be changed in eternity. We'll have the removal of this flesh. And then we will be as Adam was before the fall, able to love God completely. And only then. Alright? 
uh, the heart does now, the regenerated part does now, but then we'll be able to do that with our whole being. And in their mouth was found no guile. Uh, this is just another statement about the effects of regeneration. And uh, they were without fault before the throne of God. Now, verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto, unto them that dwell on the earth. Now, if we look at this as a, as a creature that has the ability of wings and flies, this is the only time in Scripture that God has ever commissioned that kind of being to ever preach the gospel. It is by the foolishness of preaching, and that he has committed to people. He never committed. In fact, angels looked into the gospel trying to figure it out. It is so foreign to them. They know it is precious. It was precious to God. It was precious to the Lamb. It was precious to the covenant of grace. It is mentioned and praised in heaven. It is precious to the saints. It is precious to the church. It is precious to God's people. It has been precious. It is precious. And it forever shall be precious. And they can't understand it. They don't know a thing about grace. Those who kept their first estate have no idea what grace is. And those who did not keep their first estate will never learn what grace is. We fell in Adam and we're the only creatures that God ever created that will ever be given an ability to understand what grace is. The animals never will. The mineral kingdom never will. They will have things happen to them in the restoration when all things become new. But only human beings will ever be able to understand what grace is. And so this angel came out. It says there, uh, in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell in the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. There followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast that his Im- and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever and they shall have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name now we get over a little further that's just a this is a very vivid description of everlasting death it's more vivid than when we get over there this is a vivid description. My goodness. This is, uh, this is a, a denunciation against those who worship the beast and receive the mark. And this is God. these are those on the left hand. These have a statement made against them that they will suffer forever and ever. And we get over to the statement about death and hell, give up those that are in them, and they stand in judgment and are pronounced. Those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life shall enter into everlasting death. 
everlasting hell, and this is the second death. So here is a very, very, uh, oh, inglorious, I don't don't know how to put it, I can't say good description of the judgment that shall fall. And then uh, it says there in verse... uh, Verse 12 kind of goes back up to the group that we read about early. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that kept the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now I'd like to look at these three messengers that came and pronounced these three things here in the book of Revelation as three statements made about how God saves His people. First thing is necessary we must hear the everlasting gospel. It is essential. And the everlasting gospel is brought out there, another angel in the midst of heaven, flying in the midst of heaven, the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. The second messenger, the second angel, says this, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, I don't know about you, but I was always taught, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church here. Sorry, folks. That's not what it's being talking about. It is talking about when God in His great power comes upon His saints in regeneration, He looses them from the prison of darkness, religion, everything else that we have, all that is fallen. The gospel of Christ causes this statement of religion to fall away. And we're going to look at several verses about that. And then we find the results of the preaching of the everlasting gospel, the life changed by the gospel, and that is the patience of the saints. They keep the commandments of God, and they have faith in Jesus. This is what they have. So let's first of all look at this uh, statement made by this messenger, the everlasting gospel. Now, in order to have an everlasting gospel... You must have an everlasting God. If you don't have an everlasting gospel, you can't have an everlasting God. They go hand in glove. And if you have an everlasting God, you have an everlasting Father. Because it is the Father's relationship that gives us a birth. We are... necessarily dependent upon the relationship to God as our Father. He is the one that bears us in this regenerative process. And if we have an everlasting God, which the Bible declares, and let me put it this way, since we have an everlasting God, and since we have an everlasting Father, we find that we're going to have an everlasting righteousness. It just goes hand in glove. The glove's going to fit. All right, turn with me to the Old Testament, book of Isaiah, chapter 40. As we look at the everlasting gospel, we're going to see that there's some essential qualities of this, and this is the gospel. This, Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40. It is the everlasting gospel runs hand in glove with God's everlastingness, which is God's elective grace. It's everlasting. It's eternal. All right. Isaiah 40. 
Isaiah 40 and verse 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, faithful not, uh, faith, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. In verse 28 it says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God... Now that's a quality that is found throughout the scriptures, that there is an eternal, everlasting God. We can't put a time frame on him. We are so limited when we come and talk about the eternality of God. We can only deal with it with terms that we can understand. And we being finite and he being infinite, we don't have the words to describe it. So, we have words that we can't understand. Everlasting. Eternal. They're there. We do the best job we can. The Holy Spirit has to fill in the gaps. The Holy Spirit has to share with us what it means. And we walk away and say, I really can't understand it, but I believe it all. I just believe it. It is part of God's purpose that His church believe that He is everlasting. Now, turn with me just uh, back just a little bit in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Chapter 9 tells us, uh, and we often read this around Christmas time, so we're going to read it two or three months later, two months later. Isaiah chapter 9. These, this is the name of God. This is His name. Instead of commas, I think it should have been hyphenated. This is His name. It says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name. doesn't say names. His name shall be. All right, his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It is essential that we have an Everlasting Father. This part, this revelation, this reflection of God to us shares with us that God was infinitely and eternally interested in us being His children. When we read the word Father in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're talking about the being that bears us. He bore us into this world. He bore us by His by His majesty, He gives us the physical birth. I was just taken back a little bit yesterday. I'm laying way back here, getting ready to have surgery. The doctor comes in. I've already met him. He says, would you mind if we have prayer right now? And I says, I think it would be appropriate. <laughs> as long as we're talking to a great almighty God. Now, this everlasting Father... He had an interest in bringing children into this world before the world began. He was so interested that he had them set aside. Now, 
how he did that, the means in which he performed it, is beyond our grasp, but he is the everlasting father. He is going to have a family. He's going to have children. He's the everlasting father. He's the everlasting God. He's going to have a... Well, I'm jumping ahead. He's going to have an everlasting kingdom. And if he has an everlasting kingdom, he has to have everlasting subjects. You don't have a kingdom if you don't have subjects. All right, let's go to Psalm. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 tells us some facts about the everlasting God and the everlasting Father with regard to his character. Psalm 119, verse 142. Psalm 119, verse 142. It says this about God. Now, if we have an everlasting God, an everlasting Father, and He is who He says He is, and since He is who He says He is, He is going to have this characteristic, everlasting righteousness. He is going to have everlasting righteousness. The Scriptures bear this out. He reveals it in regeneration. I have always been... I have always been the everlasting Father, and I have always had everlasting righteousness. There's not a time when He acquired righteousness. He is not like us. We're the only ones that can say, I have been given righteousness. In regeneration, God gave to me His righteousness, but God never had to say that because He has everlasting righteousness. He is so pleasing to the righteous qualities of righteousness. All right. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 142. The scriptures share this. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Your righteousness, God's righteousness, is an everlasting righteousness. When this messenger came out and presented the everlasting gospel... This is declaring that there's an everlasting God. This is declaring the everlasting fatherness of God. Declaring an everlasting righteousness of God. And would you join me in uh, Psalm 145? Psalm 145. And this is where the church comes in. The church comes in. Everlasting God, everlasting Father, everlasting righteousness. And every characteristic and attribute of God is everlasting. I just brought up that one. That's so valuable to us. The rest of them are so valuable too. Don't get me wrong. But oh, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God imputed to us, that is all our hope and that is all our righteousness. All right. Psalm 145, verse 8. The scriptures share this. Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and, and of great mercy. Church is just saying, hallelujah. We love every word of it. I like God slow to anger. The only time He is ever angry with me in His everlasting righteousness and His everlasting fatherness and His everlasting Godhood, the only time He was ever angry with His everlasting children was at the cross when He was angry with His Son. That's the only time. 
I was visiting with Brother Wayne Boyd one time, and I said, Wayne, what happens? What does God do when a Christian sins? He thought about it for a while. He says, nothing. Do you pay for it? It's not. He's not going to mark it down and say, well, I'm going to have to stomp on you for a while. He does nothing. He's already done it. Now, He will correct us, but it's not over that. He corrected His Son. He says, now, as a human being, He demonstrated to us what it is to be corrected. He became sin for us. God took out after Him. Now, to us, when we sin, when God's people sin, how does that reflect on God? How, how does God deal with that? How? He does nothing. It's not in His character if the payment has been made to do something about it. It's not in the covenant of grace. He's not going to rise and fall in His love over His children. He has an everlasting church, an everlasting kingdom. Now look here. The Lord is good to all, verse 9, and has tender mercies over all His works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They, they shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men thy mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth through all generations. What does that say? The church is an everlasting church. His assembly has been everlasting. He's not going to remove one out of it because of what they've done. It's all been paid for. It is enough. I believe this. It is enough for God through His Word to strike our heart over what we do. It is enough. God will take the Word and strike our heart. But he's not going to be moved, for he was moved against all our sin. It's an everlasting Father, everlasting God, with an everlasting righteousness, demonstrating his everlasting fatherliness with an everlasting kingdom. And back, going ahead just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. It's no wonder that this great angel, this great messenger, could go out and who did it go to? Every kindred, nation, people, and tongue. The everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel. That means it did not come into creation after Adam fell. God was not caught off guard. He was not caught off guard with Jesus. With Judas, even though the scriptures tell us plainly, my own friend did this. He was not caught off guard when they arrested him. He was not caught off guard. I lay down my life. All right, Isaiah forty-five verse seventeen. <clears throat> Isaiah forty-five verse seventeen. The scripture says, "But Israel shall be saved." In the Lord with an everlasting salvation. 
ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded. Verse 17, Isaiah 45, verse 17. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Now the only way you can contort this is if you believe national Israel is God's chosen people. And the only way you could do that is say God failed when his son came to this earth. He didn't accomplish what he intended to do and therefore we have to have this other process that we're going to go through which is so common among people today. Unknown to God and unknown to Christ and unknown to Paul and unknown to Peter. He had a purpose when he came he didn't have this new modern idea of what's going to happen. This is the picture of the church. The church has everlasting salvation. We have an everlasting righteousness. We have an everlasting salvation. What does God do with lost sheep when he regenerates them? He acquaints them with the fact that he had an interest in them before the world began. He acquaints them with the fact that he's their everlasting father. He acquaints them with the fact that he has an everlasting righteousness. He acquaints them with the fact that he's an everlasting God. He acquaints them with the fact that he has an everlasting kingdom. And Jeremiah 31, we've been there many times. Jeremiah 31, when the Lord is speaking through his prophet Jeremiah with regard to the church again, this passage is called Israel. National Israel never got anything. Spiritual Israel gets everything. And in Jeremiah 31, we have this. And it doesn't fade, doesn't tarnish, does not die away. God does not love us more today because we were faithful and less yesterday because we weren't. He loves us with an everlasting love. Unchanging. If God's love changes, it means God changes. And if God changes, let's go fishing. Because there's nothing for us. God must be unchangeable. He said, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. It's because of his unchangeable, because of his promise and a covenant, because he has a covenant, a promise to keep. All right, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, it says, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I've loved the church with an everlasting love. Why? Because God's everlasting. There wasn't a time that he started to love the church. He's ever loved the church. There wasn't a time he started to have a kingdom. He has forever had a kingdom. There wasn't a time he started to be a father. He's the everlasting father. There wasn't a time he started to be God. He's the everlasting God. There wasn't a time he started to have a people. He's always had his people. And turn with me to Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60. This is just going to drop us right into the next angel's message. Isaiah 60, verse 19. These are words right out of the book of Revelation. 
The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give the light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Everlasting light. Now, he's an everlasting God, everlasting God, Father, has everlasting righteousness, he has an everlasting kingdom, he has everlasting salvation, he has everlasting love, he has everlasting light, and it is that light that breaks the hold of Babylon. When God gives us understanding in salvation. So look over here. Just flip over to Revelation 14 again if you would. And we notice here that the, the uh, next great messenger shares with us. And this is the same message. I don't know. I've heard some people say, Heck must have froze over because God saved somebody. What is it? Well, the other angel said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations to drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is fallen. No longer has the grasp, the grip. What God did is peel the grip of religion, peel the grip of old Babylon, the, the means of our religious fornication against God off of us. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is brought out so wonderful here. This is a wonderful chapter that declares the many benefits of God's eternal election. But I just want to spend a little time on verse 9. I just want to read it. This is what God does, and this is how He strips us of old Babylon. Babylon has a grip. Religion has a grip. Our, our own old ways have a grip. Our, our, our being is gripped by sin. Our, our being is gripped by death. And God strips that off. We've been grappled down. We've been held in prison. I don't know how many times in the Old Testament and then pictured in the New Testament how God demonstrates what He does when He releases a soul out of prison releases us from Babylon, releases us from everything that is opposed to God. We are enmity against God, and He takes and gives us a new mind about God. He strips us of all contrary to God Babylon. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it says here, For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What happened? These were, these stone gods, gold gods, wooden gods, metal gods, everything that would attract us away from God, they're stripped away. They're removed. They're plucked off. Turned away from. And the only one that can do that is God. 
but he does it and the next thing that God is able to say through his messengers is that the the reality of the gospel in the hearts, lives, and minds of his people is they will put away their old religion. They will not be caught up in it. They will not go back to it. Now a lot of people go through the form and say, yes, I forgot it before you know it. Well, three out of the four seeds in the parable of the sower do exactly the same because they never were stripped of Babylon. They were dutiful hearers but didn't hear a thing. The one God worked a work of grace and it this one bore fruit. Just as these in Thessalonica turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned to God. God turned them. Turn me and I shall be turned from idols. Look in Psalm again. Psalm 142. Psalm 142. Look at this. Look at this. The everlasting gospel is preached. And the results of it, God's going to do something. And he's going to cause Babylon the Great to fall around the, off the hearts of his people. Psalm 142, verse 7. Bring my soul out of prison. Now there's nothing worse than a religious prison. Bring my soul out of prison. I don't care what we call it. A lot of people, I don't believe in any organized religion. Well, that's fine. But God's going to bring us out of that. <laughs> He's going to strip us of that. He's going to cause the hold of Babylon the grips of Babylon shall fall. What's it say? Bring my soul out of prison that I might praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Now, the Lord went into prison for us. He went into the death for us. He went into hell for us. He went into the second death for us. But my friend, we are like Barabbas in prison, spiritually speaking, and it is only the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and Barabbas, he didn't put, I don't know if he ever put it all together, but as a result of Christ going to the cross, he's released. A murderer is released from prison to go out in the sunlight again. Well, that's just certainly a wonderful picture of God saving his people. Our substitute went to the cross. We held in prison, in darkness, in sin, he causes us to be released from that prison of our old self-righteousness, our old mores and morals, our own our thoughts, all our intents, all of our own faith, all of our own uh, good works. He strips us and causes us to say, I am dependent wholly upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ and that alone. 
no longer does Babylon have part of me. Now, though we fall, we shall not utterly be cast down. We're going to skip and fall and all these things. And we may be tempted, but we'll not be turned by every wind of doctrine anymore. We'll not be caught up. We'll be not taken away. We'll not spend the rest of our life there. And we say, and we ask God every day, don't ever let me go back. Don't let me ever go back. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah again, chapter 42. Isaiah 42, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth, and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth bread, a breath unto the people upon it, and the spirit to them that walk therein, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thy hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for the light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images." I'll take prisoners out of the prison house. And religion is really a prison. It is a prison. Whether we are in recognized religion or not, we cannot, we will never. You ask someone that is steeped in religion, and they will tell you they cannot. And one of the articles of Arminius, in which the group that came out with what we know as the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace was just a rebuttal against that their comment was whether man is eternally saved or not we'll have to do some more study on (sighs) my goodness that's prison ask someone steeped in religion and they say are you saved the temple of doom next door you ask uh, we won't know until we stand before God Thank God he takes the prisoners out of prison. He releases Babylon. Changes our heart. The idols are left behind. Thank God. Thank God. Final verse here. I'm going to have to quit. We're not quite finished, but we're going to quit. We can always come back here. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. This is, this is part of... What the Lord Jesus Christ shares with the church. Isaiah 61. Uh, the Lord went into a synagogue one time, and he's a visiting preacher. And so, <laughs> for all the, 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 the ways that religion hated him, he sure does cause providence to happen. He goes in there and sits down, and they bring over a scroll and say, Would you like to say a few words? Opens up Isaiah 61, reads it and says, This day was this fulfilled in your hearing, and sat down 
Well, here it is. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them the mor- that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Do you notice in there? He is going to cause proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Great messenger comes out and says, When God gets through with his work, you're free. Free indeed. First freedom we ever had. He liberated us from Babylon. Babylon goes way back. Oh, that's the Tower of Babel. That's where men decided that they'd go up and be as good as God was. Their righteousness would be as good. They could commune with the stars, lay out the astrological, all that stuff. It was way back in the history of man. And God says, I will liberate you from Babylon. That's what it is. It's fallen. Well, the next one comes out and says... This is what happens when God does His work. I'll give you patience. I'll give you the ability to keep my word. And I'll give you faith. And we'll look at that next time, Lord willing. There in that uh, Revelation 14, as we see the great works of the Gospel, the everlasting Gospel, the work of it is, it is the everlasting gospel to every kindred nation, people, and tongue. And the results of it is, I'll pry the slimy grip of Babylon off of you, and I will put my spirit within you.